What's up, everybody? My name is Steve Andwell. Welcome to another episode of Steve's Cannabis Show. My guest today is Dr. Mohan Kare, the president and CEO of Canalog, a specialist in internal medicine, gastroenterology, hepatology, and advanced endoscopy. Dr. Mohan Kare has extensive experience in the epidemiology and treatment of disease. After graduating from the University of Toronto's Life Sciences program with the highest distinction, he was accepted into the prestigious Michael G. DeGroote School of Medicine at McMaster University and was recognized for his achievements with the Outstanding Gastroenterology Resident Award in 2015. He was quickly recruited for a highly coveted position at the Michael Guerin Hospital in Toronto, where he worked with patients undergoing treatment for digestive diseases. Soon into his tenure at the hospital, Dr. Cray realized the limitations of traditional pharmaceuticals in the treatment of disease and the harmful, often life-threatening effects they were causing. By researching alternative therapies and analyzing patient reports, Dr. Cray quickly discovered the benefits of medical cannabis, only to realize that access to this centuries-old therapy was restricted. With a passion for innovation and with the help of his peers, Dr. Curry founded healthcare technology platform Canalog in 2016. Advocating for better patient care and with a mandate to improve access for all Canadians, Canalog received Health Canada's first direct-to-sales license for medical cannabis in 2019. In addition to his role as president and CEO of Canalog, Dr. Curry is also an assistant clinical professor at the Department of Medicine for McMaster's Division of Innovation and Education. Dr. Curry, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, Steve, the pleasure is all mine. Uh, very excited for this uh, discussion today. Yeah, such an impressive uh, resume. And I always like to see people with such notoriety and uh, strong academic background entering the cannabis space. It really gives the industry the legitimacy uh, that it needs. So thank you very much. Um, so yeah, tell me a little bit about your background as a practicing physician and really how it led you into the cannabis industry. Oh, absolutely, Steve. So um, initially, when I started my digestive practice in Toronto, um, I was very um, skeptical of the therapeutic effects of cannabinoids altogether, um, particularly in digestive diseases, but just as it applies to, me to medicine as a whole. Uh, coming from McMaster University, which is, you know, the center of evidence-based medicine, I was approaching uh, back in maybe 2015 uh, in the, the treatment of patients that exact same way, where when I looked at cannabinoids, I said, what is the evidence for me to be able to prescribe this? And if there's a lack of evidence, then perhaps there's really no efficacy or treatment there altogether. So I approached the initial conversation as a skeptic, and then uh, I didn't actually even prescribe in my first uh, few years of practice, but you know, it's Toronto and uh, people somehow get exposed to uh, medical cannabis in different ways and forms. And uh, I couldn't believe it. I saw the results firsthand in my patients where I actually uh, denied them or deferred uh, medical cannabis just because of the lack of, of evidence altogether that I could see or read about. And the results spoke for themselves. I saw uh, tremendous improvements in the quality of life of my patients. I even saw some degrees of disease modification. And that really inspired me to, to think harder about cannabinoids and to ask myself, is there a real medicine here? Why did we not learn about this through all this uh, training that I went through over 13 years of post-secondary education? Why did we not learn about this? And the more that I dug into this, I realized that there is an app, there is a real medicine here for some reason that the world doesn't necessarily know about and that perhaps um, there's a place for us to provide education and better information and awareness about the medical effects of cannabinoids altogether. 
That's crazy. 13 years of, you know, advanced medical training. And there was, did you ever learn about the endocannabinoid science or cannabinoids or terpenes or like t t cannabis to any extent? Uh, not once, not once at all. So throughout all of our uh, medical training, including medical school, postgraduate training, including specialization, internal medicine and internal medicine, we're supposed to uh, be the uh, micro minutia doctors that can identify, you know, one in a million types of uh, diseases and disorders that, you know, that are quite rare. But in no point in my training and, uh, and even speaking to my medical colleagues as well, uh, never did we learn about the human endocannabinoid system. Never did we even once remotely consider cannabinoids uh, anywhere as a therapeutic option for any disease, condition, pain, anything. Um, so to me, I was a little perplexed as to how one can go through this entire rigorous training pro process, including final examinations where, uh, you know, prior to being, uh, you know, board certified and able to practice, we have to know all the microminutia that one can omit this information altogether from our own understanding of medicine. So to me, it, it highlighted perhaps maybe a bigger problem. When you, you know, started using medical cannabis on your patients, what were some of the, the disorders or, or diseases or ailments you were using that you were treating at the time with the with medical cannabis? Absolutely. So one of the areas um, incredibly prevalent in digestive diseases is irritable bowel syndrome. And uh, IBS is uh, the best way to explain it for, for the audience is that it's, it's essentially a nervous stomach. Uh, it's almost anxiety of the gut that can manifest in the form of pain, sometimes diarrhea, sometimes constipation or a mix of different uh, symptoms altogether. And unfortunately, in that population, uh, there is no cure. Uh, it is uh, very much uh, more of a bit of a, a nervous system disorder of the stomach. And because of that, a lot of the medications that we use uh, function as a bandage. Uh, so some doctors, although not myself, uh, do prescribe opioids for the treatment of uh, irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, some will prescribe other uh, pain medications, including even NSAIDs for that matter. But overall, the, the difficulty is that there just isn't enough traditional medical options for even this one disease. And unfortunately, when you try everything and try changing your diet and changing your lifestyle, there's still a lot of symptoms uh, that, that, that exist. So when my patients uh, in uh, my practice just naturally became exposed to cannabinoids or medical cannabis here in Canada, I was able to witness what the results were in that population. And the best way to explain it, Steve, is that um, the, one of the main symptoms from irritable bowel syndrome is pain. And uh, the improvement that medical cannabis was, was resulting in that just in the, the symptom of pain was inspiring altogether. It, asked, it, it led me to ask myself, how does this happen? What is the mechanism behind patients feeling less pain? And is this a bigger therapeutic option for irritable bowel syndrome, number one? And then when we extrapolate this, uh, you know, what we realize here is that cannabinoids work all throughout the body. You can't target just the intestines. You can't target just the liver. You can't target one specific organ. And because of that, the effects are actually far more widespread and much more benefit that we're going to uncover or discover uh, over the course of the next several years. Yeah, so you you have this uh, unbelievable realization of you know the power of medical cannabis, and it leads you to uh, founding Canalog. What was your initial vi uh, vision for Canalog, and is there a I guess a specific problem you were trying to solve? Uh, absolutely, Steve. So what I discovered when I dug deeper, this is around 2015 into this, is uh, going back to the problem, I couldn't understand why we were never taught about the human endocannabinoid system and the effects of cannabinoids. 
So that was a big problem for me, just in terms of even my own self and understanding of what is the truth in this world that we live in. Um, but the second problem was, okay, well, I said, okay, you know, let me just function as the doctor and provide this medicine to my patients because I do see the value. And in the Canadian system, uh, I was trying to understand, well, how do I prescribe? What is the system and the process that I follow to prescribe? What is the dose that I uh, prescribe at? You know, relative to traditional pharmaceutical standards, uh, you know, what, how do I pick something? What is the dose? How often do they take it? What do I expect and how do I manage those expectations? And, and the best way to put it, Steve, is that, you know, uh, it's, it's sometimes the optics of how we view the world. The cup can be half full or the cup can be half empty. At that time in, in 2015, uh, you know, there was a considerable, a tremendous amount of work that had been done to be able to get it to that point. However, from my perspective, which is very much medical, um, there was a lot to be desired. And then the way that we evaluated the system in Canada, there was one fundamental problem that we identified that needed to be remedied as quickly as possible for the growth of the industry um, and, and even just the education for that matter as a whole. And in Canada back then, it was the fact that one patient, when they got their prescription, was stuck to one licensed producer or the cultivator. And because of that, anytime the patient wanted to, let's say, for example, change the licensed producer or the, the medications weren't working or there's some other problem, they had to go back to their doctor to be able to get a prescription change uh, to somebody else. And that becomes a burden and an inconvenience uh, and potentially a cost for the patients. And it's also the same for the doctor as well. And it's completely unnecessary. So when, we're, when we started asking these questions of, wait a second, hold on, is there a real medicine here? How do we prove it? How do we prescribe it? How do we dose it? How do we make this entire system as simple as possible for the patient, which is our priority, our top priority is the patient, but also make it simple and easy for the doctor? That's how we arrived at the solution that is Canalog. So Canalog is an uh, Amazon-like online marketplace for medical cannabis products for patients across Canada where the medical products are recommended by doctors and the services of is approved by Health Canada. Yeah, I will say that when I first, when we first got in contact a few weeks ago, and I and I was on your website the first time, the f the first thing that came to me is, wow, this website is so sexy. It's interactive. The branding is wonderful. There's a ton of features, a ton of great information. What are some of the features of the Canalog platform? Absolutely, great, great question, Steve. So, one of the the fundamental premises that we uh, focused on was prioritizing the interests of the patient, and that's how we reverse engineered what we felt Canlog should be, right, or should become. And within this, we still have to work within the laws of what we're able to do and able to say and what we're not able to say, unfortunately. But fundamentally, what we said is that patients should have selection. Right. Um, doctors should have selection when they're prescribing these uh, medications. Patients should have selection on the other side if in, if in the event that they want to try something a little bit different. So with Canalog, you, uh, one is able to access multiple different companies and, and those products. So that way the diversity and the distribution of the different products are all there. So what I mean by that is that uh, we don't have, let's say, 
30 companies that sell just dried flour or pr provide just dried flour, we look at other different formulations and product types, including oils, capsules, and hopefully later this year, topicals in Canada. And that entire selection, which is critical for the patient, uh, is also available for the doctor as well. The second thing that's fundamentally important is, is this is a medicine, right? And it's not acceptable to me as a physician when prescribing a medicine that supplies run out. Now, I understand that supplies could run out. It happens in pharmaceuticals as well for all different types of reasons. And so there are factors that are beyond our control. However, if there's a cognizant decision by an organization saying that they are medical but not prioritizing the interests of patients uh, to demonstrate that they are medical, that's a, con a larger concern for me. So the way that we've looked at it is that we have aggregated medical suppliers that are of, of the highest quality in Canada. And because of that, they are committed to servicing these patients. So when we're looking at it from a medical perspective, just like your high blood pressure pill or your cholesterol pill, you need to take these medications and supplies should not be a problem. So with the CanLog platform, we have never had supplies running out and we never hope to have supplies ever uh, being an issue for patients. And that is the, the premise of CanLog. The last point is that we wanted to make the entire process as easy as possible for the patient. Get them from A to B in the simplest, easiest way possible that complies with the medical architecture upon which we're building the system, uh, as well as the laws. And fundamentally, the way that we've approached this in Canada is that there's a couple of barriers that we have to be able to work within or work around. Uh, and one is that in Canada, you do need to have a medical assessment and a prescription by a physician to be able to access the catalog platform. So if a patient doesn't have uh, uh, access to a, a primary care provider or their primary care provider doesn't know enough about the topic or they may deny them or defer them or they, they're sent to somewhere else where there's like a heavy cost, we said, no, 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 no. Absolutely not. We're not, we don't want that. We want to focus on servicing patients to the highest quality as possible. So if they don't have a family doctor, we provide them a free medical assessment. Uh, so that way the, the, the assessment or the cost of the assessment is not a barrier. It's all included with the service that is catalog. And then the second part that's fundamentally important is that uh, price is always a barrier. Right, it, it, especially under these circumstances, particularly during COVID-19, uh, we have decided in Canada to go below cost to provide these medical supplies to patients because we believe wholeheartedly that this is the time to help patients, particularly when mental health disorders, anxiety, stress, all these other issues that are on the rise are going to be there. We felt this is the time. And because of that, we have the most inclusive compassionate care program with the lowest prices in the country available for these medicines in Canada. And this is how we've designed the CanLog platform to be able to prioritize the interests of patients. Yeah, it's such a breath of fresh air because, you know, in New York especially, our medical marijuana program is garbage. Um, there's not a, a huge selection of, of registered organizations. You know, they, they gave out 10 licenses and each one of these companies were allowed to have 40 or four dispensaries. So in a state with many millions of people as New York, you know, it's like 
seven, eight million adults, 21 plus, you have 40, you know, max of 40 dispensaries. So accessibility is a huge issue in New York, coupled with the fact that there's no flour, there's no no whole plant extracts, edibles, there's a li really limited product supply. So it sounds like you guys really have a good grasp on having a, a, robu a robust product portfolio and making sure that the, the prices are fair to the consumer. You know, our products here, you're looking at like 70 to 80 gram or 80 bucks, maybe even 90 bucks for a half gram uh, oil cartridge. I mean, that's absurd. That's like 2x the illicit market, maybe higher. So props to you guys for really putting patients first. And, uh, you know, secondly, one thing that I really love about Canalog is that you guys don't actually make your own products. Rather, you are a physician-led organization that really objectively vets other products. It really takes the, the bias out of it. So what what is your process like in vetting products or choosing vendors to sell on your marketplace? Absolutely. Great question, Steve. So what we decided as an organization uh, maybe about five years ago is that the best, uh, you know, the value that we can add to the collective industry, the global sector as a whole, is really on the medical side. And we decided as an organization to, number one, stay medical and only be a medical organization, number one. We decided not to grow anything, not to cultivate or process. We decided not to touch anything uh, whatsoever. We decided not to have any catalog branded products. So that way we can be uh, objective and agnostic with this process. And in the event that there is a product uh, or, or two or more that does work in whatever disease condition or whatnot, we can objectively evaluate that product and that you know efficacy that we're seeing. So that way we can translate it to the medical folks so that way they can understand it, digest it as well. So that way they can learn and um, perhaps offer it to their patients. So in the vetting of these uh, producers, uh, we are very, very uh, selective and very critical with the methodology upon which we uh, recruit uh, any uh, license holders in Canada or in other markets altogether. So there's an internal diligence process that every licensed producer goes through, license holder goes through, to be eligible to even be considered to come onto the catalog platform first. And uh, simple criteria is that, number one, because we're medical, we only want organizations that are medical and are committed to servicing patients. Uh, it, 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 now, we understand there could be other types of relations and business considerations, absolutely, but provided that one can maintain uh, that commitment to servicing patients and a growing amount of patients over the course of the next several years and, and likely decades, uh, that is the fundamental premise upon which we're looking uh, for producers. The second part is, is the product. So, you know, for me as a doctor, the way that I would say it is that uh, I understand what some of these cannabinoid ingredients could actually do in all medicine, all of medicine as a whole. Now, the problem is that I can't get the product that I want or the ingredient that I want to be able to go towards the patient yet, just based on the laws that we're working with. However, the product and the quality of the product is unequivocally of, uh, of the highest importance to us at Canlog. We want to make sure that the products that the patients and the consumers are seeing at the end are the, the best in the country, ideally. And that's the, the, the quality, right? The quality assurance, uh, the, the, almost uh, the certification uh, that, that comes along with, uh, with Canlog. So long story short, it's a, it's a long diligence internal process that all uh, license holders, uh, producers go through prior to even arriving on the platform. 
Yeah, it's, you know, it's, in the U.S., we have so many uh, vendors and, and businesses in the space, especially in the CBD and hemp space. And, you know, New York alone, we had like, I don't know, 400 hemp growers for CBD, you know, 90 processing licenses that were given out, you know, nth amount of brands. You know, how do you possibly sift through the good and the bad? So it sounds like you guys have a really uh, a really good system in place. I mean, you have to. It's a, it's, it's a medical cannabis company. But what I'm really interested in is, is – Looking at the Canadian rollout of cannabis compared to the U.S., you know, where U.S. has really been kind of the segmented piecemeal, piece by piece, state by state uh, opening of, you know, adult use cannabis and medical cannabis. Uh, Canada kind of went from from zero to 100. Right. What what is your uh, experience been in the Canadian cannabis market and what are some of the hurdles you faced in working in this market? Absolutely. So that's a, that's a great question, Steve. So um, again, I, I would position the, the answer to this question in saying that you know a tremendous amount of hard work and effort has been done by all levels of, of government to be able to arrive at the present day uh, you know industry and and you know kind of sector that that uh, has evolved to to where we're at presently. Despite that, however, a lot remains desired, uh, especially from the medical side. And what I mean by that, at least from the Canadian experience, is that when the decision um, and then the recommendations uh, that came forth uh, by a task force that was assembled by the Canadian government and their recommendations were brought forth in December 2016, they had made the recommendation to go forward with legalization and legalization uh, was brought forth on October 17, 2018 in Canada. And what we saw after legalization was that there was a framework that was presented, but it changed changed the framework upon which we think as well, where people may have perceived uh, the medicinal value of cannabinoids previously to that framework for legalization. But then after legalization, it's over the counter or it's recreationally available. So people then said, okay, well, I don't need my doctor. I can just go and get it from wherever. And that is unfortunately one of the biggest problems that we've seen on the medical side is that when when consumers are going to be able to access these products, and I want to make sure I differentiate the consumer. I'm not specifically referring to the consumer that is looking to become intoxicated from a psychoactive substance for whatever their personal needs or desires are. I'm, I'm specifically referring to patients where they have a health or medical problem and they may be taking other medications and those medications aren't working and they're looking for other solutions. The problem in Canada is that the lack of education is a systemic problem where even the recreational side is facing these problems. So once people can go to the store and then they say, okay, I'm going to pick something. Well, how do you make that decision? Mm -hmm. Right? What, why, are, why are you even doing it? So for, from, from the medical side, again, looking at that medical consumer altogether, they're using it for a very different need than the recreational consumer. And without that education or that awareness, and especially without that coaching, and, and, and no offense to you know, all of the, the amazing folks that work at the dispensaries and the, you know, the retail operations all throughout Canada and the U.S., there's wonderful work and, and knowledge and education that can be provided, but it's just a different sphere of, of knowledge altogether. So one of the biggest problems that we've identified, Steve, in Canada is that after legalization came and happened, what essentially was disseminated was 
a decision to uh, the federal government made it allowed the provincial and territorial governments to decide whatever system that they want to run in their province and ter territory they can for non-medical access. So then there were competing agendas amongst the provinces and territories how to be able to you know execute the vision uh, you know on, on the ground. And what we've seen is that there's a lack of harmony between the provinces and territories, particularly during COVID-19. The education is just not there. There are tons of patients all across Canada that could absolutely unequivocally benefit from it. But because the, the framework of shifting has just said, you know what, just go to the recreational store, do whatever you got to do. And they didn't provide the framework for education. It's actually led to more problems than answers. Yeah, it's funny, you really hit the nail on the head with education. I think, you know, when we talk about recreational versus medical, there's really no difference because at the end of the day, it's a plant. But I really think the difference that we need to be addressing is the type of education that the consumer receives. You know, you go into a, a rec dispensary, you're going to get cultivar information, you know, very kind of like... Uh, high level, you know, overview of the effects. But like, I know personally, when somebody asks me, what type of product should I take? I say, well, first of all, what, what, what type, I'm not a doctor by any chance, you know, by any means, but I say, what ailments are you experiencing? And like, you know, here's some information on the endocannabinoid system. And it's like, once you kind of open people's eyes to the, to the endocannabinoid system and how CBD and THC and all these cannabinoids and terpenes actually work together, you see that light go off. You know, I'm sure you've seen that light bulb go off in people's eyes many times throughout your career. And it's something that I think, you know, whether wh whatever side of the fence you you sit on for legalization, or if you don't believe it, I think we can all agree on what we need more than anything is sound, scientific, you know, objective education. It really sounds like you guys are, are, are pioneering that. So um, are, what's your plan on entering the, uh, the the U.S. market? I know you guys are mainly in Canada right now, but do you have, are you planning on entering the, the U.S. market? And, you know, what kind of uh, opportunities or challenges rather do you foresee having in this market? Uh, so the, the way that we designed the catalog platform was that we felt that the system that is catalog can be operated in any country across the world, provided that the framework upon which we operate complies uh, with the law, the laws of the, those nations. And um, because Canada was fairly advanced in terms of uh, not just from a, a policy uh, and regulatory perspective, but just even the execution of this altogether, we consider Canada more of the scientific testing ground uh, upon which the hypothesis generation is there and then we can see exactly how it works what it works but the value of what we have learned in canada or the canadian experiment essentially the best way to say it is is that um, there's a lot that we can take now into different markets uh, whether it be the united states or other international markets where uh, there is a desire by uh, those governments to be able to provide these medicines to uh, you know all of the residents and citizens of these 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 countries so uh, unequivocally Catalog is a global healthcare technology platform where we will be in the United States of America very, uh, very shortly, very, very shortly. And had it not been for COVID-19, we might have actually uh, been announcing our launch already. So I hope that gives you a little sense of, you know, uh, that, you know, this is the direction that we're going and we will be providing these same services um, in other markets, including the United States. The difference uh, from Canada versus the United States is really, you know, what are we able to provide given the laws change? And fundamentally, this is a very difficult question for me to be able to, you know, kind of look at, right? Is that does a medicine 
change if you're in Canada versus in Europe versus in the United States versus Australia. If a medicine works for a problem, a disease, it should work whether you're in Canada or you're in the United Kingdom or you're in the USA. So why is the approach that we're taking different? So nonetheless, you know, I'm a doctor. I'm not a, you know, like I'm not in the, I'm not a politician. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, and then the fundamental way that we approach this is that we're happy to work within whatever the laws are. And uh, if the laws allow us to be able to provide some of these medicines on a national basis, then we will provide some of these medicines. If we are able to provide all of these uh, medicines on a national basis, then we unequivocally will provide all of these medicines. For me, the way to say it, Steve, is that I think there's far more that we're going to see with all of the different phytocannabinoids and active ingredients that we're talking about um, as time goes on. It's just not there today. And I can tell you that what we've learned with just THC and CBD alone is a game changer. So if we use those same principles uh, into the U.S. experiment and other uh, uh, countries as a whole, what I can tell you is that the overall direction of, of where we're going is that this is a medicine that should be widely available, accessible, sorry, accessible and affordable in any market. And that's uh, what we're very much advocating for. So frustrates me so much about the U.S. is, you know, at this point, you know, cannabis and just like every other issue in the U.S. is just hyper politicized. Right. And cannabis is something that, you know, both red and or heavily red and blue states have medical marijuana programs in the U.S. You know, 36 total states and like 11 rec states would have been 12 if New York legalized this year. But how do you kind of get around, you know, with the Fed still being THC and, and marijuana really being federally illegal, which means, you know, that you, we have to start worrying about interstate commerce and crossing state lines as a global e-commerce platform. How do you how do you navigate the, the issue with uh, interstate commerce? And, you know, say if you have a medical patient in, uh, I don't know, New York who wants to buy a vape product that was manufactured in Colorado, how do you navigate those issues? Or is it just a matter of waiting for clear-cut federal legalization? Steve, such a great question there. And, and this is part of the problem when you give too much uh, authority and decision making to one state. And then you have, let's say, you know, all these different states that are working in independent silos with their own system, which could be a wonderful system altogether, but it doesn't create harmony in the overall operation of the at the federal level. And this is the same problem that we've seen in Canada is that, you know, when a, a province or territory um, is going to execute the decisions of how they're going to plan out and conduct uh, uh, whatever you know, uh, you know, decisions have been made from the powers that be above. Uh, you could get a lot of conflict as well. Right? States that don't want to cooperate with each other, uh, states that want to be able to potentially even capitalize preferentially over other states. There's all these different issues that that, that happen. The way that we approach it is that. Uh, we are happy to work within state lines to the laws of those states until one is able to advocate and perhaps maybe even consolidate a, a uniform vision of how to be able to execute federal medical access for medical cannabis um, as time goes on. So right now I can say at least, again, you would probably know better than I would, but um, you know, it, it seems that there, you know, federal medical access is quite a ways away, although may, perhaps maybe we can shorten that a little bit, but at least under the current circumstances when there's so much need and so much medicine that's there and we're just not connecting A to B, 
we at CanLog are happy to work with the regulators in, uh, in whatever state in the United States of America to be able to provide uh, these medicines altogether. And if we can say, okay, let's break this up a little bit. What are the constituents, the ingredients that are regulated at the state level versus regulated at the federal level? Then perhaps we can provide some medicines at the federal level while waiting for uh, other medicines at the state level to evolve. You know, and I got to be honest, I think that with all the darkness that COVID-19 has kind of brought the world and our countries that there may be a light at the end of the tunnel in regards to cannabis. I mean, in the U.S., most states have considered their medical cannabis essential businesses and even some states, I believe, their the recreational cannabis dispensary. So I would guess that this, this you know, essentialness uh, of cannabis in the U.S. will probably uh, decrease the amount of time it, it takes to, for uh, federal legalization. But my what I'm getting at is now you guys now have a clinical trial or an application in process to study the effects of cannabis and cannabinoids on COVID-19. Can you dive into that a little bit? please? Uh, absolutely. So um, research, science, research, uh, and then application of that science and research into medicine is a core pillar at Canalog. Uh, for us, you know, education is very important, but without research, it's hard to be able to provide education, even at the level of physicians. And I, I train a lot of physicians myself. So when COVID-19 uh, was evolving, we were very much aware of what was happening in China probably towards the fall of last year. Um, we, we were very much aware and trying to decide how we should you know, react because we weren't aware of how big the aftermath of this might become. And now that we appreciate and can see exactly what it's become, there is no greater priority as a society, a global society, than trying to find a solution to COVID-19. And the bigger question for me as a physician is what are the, you know, what are the, the, you know, the ingredients, what are the weapons that I have to be able to fight COVID-19? Are we talking about antivirals? Are we talking about antibiotics? Are we talking about you know, immunosuppressants? What are we talking about? What are the weapons that we have to be able to fight this virus? And the qu bigger question for me is that Hold on, wait a second. If cannabinoids were never even taught to me, could cannabinoids potentially work in this process? Uh, does it work against other viruses? Uh, what is the effect that we're actually you know, looking at? And I want to be extremely clear for the audience here, Steve. So I want to separate virus from host. And what we can see is that at least preliminary, preliminary information um, I'm not convinced that cannabinoids or any of the, you know, kind of the, the different, uh, you know, uh, molecules that are there have antiviral properties against this strain of coronavirus. Now, perhaps I'm wrong. I, I'm just, I, I'm a skeptical doctor and that's the way that I approach it, right? But on the host, there's something very different that we're looking at. And the research that we're looking at in Canada uh, and looking to execute in, in the form of a human clinical trial is looking at the host's response to the virus and how different individuals that might be genetically susceptible or genetically susceptible and environmentally primed might have a more severe response to the virus 
for whatever reason. And that severity might lead to hospitalization, critical illness, or mortality. And the premise behind this is that we have reasonable intelligence to believe and are willing to prove that medical cannabis, and, and I'm happy to give it away, cannabidiol, CBD, may function as an immunomodulator to be able to reduce the severity of symptoms in COVID-19. So I hope that gives you a little bit of an overview of what we're looking at. And then again, separating it from, is it working on the virus or is it work, working on the host? So we're looking at the host and we're looking to see if we can suppress some of the severity of symptoms so that way we can change the outcomes from COVID-19. And just to clarify for the listeners, and I had actually had a, a podcast a, a few months ago with Dr. Harold Smith, and we had a very similar conversation. Um, he's really from the, the preclinical side. Is talk about you know kind of the idea of of the cytokine storm and what that means in context of COVID nineteen and and what you know the anti-inflammatory and immunosuppressive or rather immunomodulating properties of CBD specifically. How does how does that all work together? Absolutely, absolutely. So um, in my digestive practice, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, you know, is a large component of, of, of digestive diseases as a whole. And, and those diseases are immune-mediated diseases, autoimmune diseases, where there's some dysfunction uh, you know, in a genetically susceptible individual with some environmental trigger that turns on Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. And in those populations, there's some, uh, you know, literature that is evolving from all throughout the world that, um, that there's some immunomodulatory properties in these cannabinoids altogether. So now going back to the cytokine storm process or the cytokine release syndrome, CRS, uh, specifically what we're seeing is that in the Chinese uh, data, uh, a lot of the, the data that's coming from uh, overseas what we have identified is that there is a higher amount of pro-inflammatory pro-inflammatory markers that are circulating in the individuals that become more sick. So if you have uh, severe COVID-19 that leads to hospitalization, critical illness, or even mortality, that those cases are associated with higher pro-inflammatory markers. One of those markers that's been already identified and reported in the literature that appears to become or will become a predictor of severity and potentially even mortality is interleukin-6. So interleukin-6, and just, you know, not to get too medical for the audience here, is just one example of a cytokine that is high in these patients that is contributing in some way, shape, or form to the severity of what we're seeing. Now, let me flip this back to cannabidiol and cannabinoids. What's happening here is that the cannabinoids and cannabidiol specifically functions to modulate some of these inflammatory markers, a decrease in some of the pro-inflammatory markers or an increase in anti-inflammatory markers. It's a scale. It's a balance between these two things. So the, 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 the literature, in fact, it does state this, but nobody has really pieced it together, uh, I, I believe, until we did uh, in the world. I, uh, to our understanding, Steve, we are the first in the world to report this mechanism. But because we've uncovered it, uh, we really feel that 
because cannabidiol and some of these phytocannabinoids could re reduce the amount of pro-inflammatory cytokines, we in fact may be able to reduce the severity of illness in COVID-19. And the extrapolation of our findings could have larger implications for autoimmune diseases as a whole. Oh, I'm so excited about this. I uh, I hope that you'll keep me updated and keep us updated. And hopefully we can do a follow-up episode after this to kind of see where you guys are in this process and how, you know, if our listenership or anything that we can do to help this, because this could really be game a game-changing study. You know, I think that logically it makes sense. We have information on, you know, CBD and cannabinoids as anti-inflammatories and immunomodulators. And we know what the kind of the physiology or the, uh, the issue, the underlying uh, issues are with COVID-19. What happens when you put them together? I am really curious of how do you plan on like picking products to study this? Do you plan on using isolates, broad spectrum, full spectrum? You know, I think we've had a conversation before is, you know, with even though we still have much to learn about cannabis and, and the efficacy around, you know, the medicinality of cannabis, what we do know is that cannabis works better as a full spectrum medicine. How do you kind of combine this notion of full spectrum and put that into a, you know, drug discovery model when traditionally drug drug discovery is built around a single molecule. How do you, how do you plan to tackle that issue? Uh, another uh, uh, outstanding question, Steve. So the, the first barrier for us is, is to be able to conduct clinical trials in humans so that way the requirements from a regulatory standpoint are all satisfied. And because a lot of these requirements, at least in Canada, are driven by pharmaceuticals, that's the standards upon which you know all license holders have to be able to uh, meet to be able to even begin uh, having conversations about clinical trials in humans. So what I can say from the Canadian experience, unfortunately, is that a lot of license holders are not eligible just because the criteria upon which to conduct clinical trials in humans are just not satisfied based on the Health Canada Office of Clinical Trials. So because of that, it actually limits our ability of, you know, what products and what spectrums that we could potentially study because uh, unfortunately, um, you know, it's just, you know, if you have, you know, so many different players and you take out 90% of them, then you're le left with whatever you have to be able to study. The way that we approach it is that you're right, that um, ideally you want to be able to target one ingredient uh, and the ingredient that we're most excited about is cannabidiol. So Ideally, that is the way that we want to approach it, but we have to be able to marry it so that way the requirements to be able to conduct the clinical trial is all satisfied as well. So even though some, some of these isolate companies um, have, you know, uh, just the cannabidiol ready to go for go, go, and that's, you know, just to be able to reduce the amount of variables, because this is partly one of the issues that could come up is that when you have too many variables, there are confounders. And even though the outcome is beneficial or positive, it's hard to be able to narrow down where exactly precisely does this difference come from? So um, an isolate would be wonderful for, for us to be able to execute the clinical trial, but the problem is that it doesn't meet the requirements uh, from the Office of Clinical Trials. Mm -hmm. So this is where we have to be a little bit flexible in terms of what we want to be able to study. And then the way that I approach this from the medical side is that the entourage effect, in fact, may be critical to a positive outcome. Now, we can always, uh, you know, dig dive deeper and analyze where are we seeing this is it coming from the cannabinoid part is it coming from the terpenoid part we can we can delve into the data and understand that better but fundamentally uh, the entourage effect may in fact be beneficial uh, for studies in humans 
That's, you know, it's like one of those things. How do we know that, you know, a trace amount of some secondary cannabinoid like CBN or CBC or, you know, a, a difference of point one percent and point two percent of a terpene could actually you know what is, effect does that have on the therapeutic benefit you know we don't know that's what i'm really excited about is who can unlock who can crack the code of of uh, of properly studying full spectrum medicine in the entourage effect and i'm really really excited and happy for you guys i uh i hope you'll keep me posted um what is the best way for people to contact you if they have questions uh, yes. So if uh, pe people have any questions, uh, the best way is to just to go directly to Canalog, www.canalog, C-A-N-N-A-L-O-G-U-E.ca. And uh, there's a contact us form there. And then any questions of any variety, medical, even non-medical questions, uh, you can answer those questions. And then uh, my representatives will, uh, you know, will be in touch with uh, any of your con uh, audience or consumers there. And um, if there's anything, uh, you know, particularly that warrants my attention, I'm, I'm more than happy to speak directly to patients. For me, the way that I, I think about this is that uh, there's so much good that can be done. Uh, there's so much, uh, so many medical problems, so much uh, pain and suffering that's there. And we believe 2020 that this is one vehicle to be able to hopefully um, treat some of the pain and suffering that exists in this world as we evolve and, and hopefully, as you said, crack the code to better being able to treat suffering as time goes on. Yeah, and the reality is, even if it's not a 100% curative drug, if it just saves one person or prevents them from dying or getting really sick, it's worth it. I know it's going to be more than that. I think you do too. And I cannot wait to see what the outcome of this study. Everybody, Doc, thank you so much for coming on here. I really appreciate your time and your knowledge. And you just have a true passion for this industry. And um, I have the opportunity to talk to you and Dr. Andrew Liu, who shout out to him for putting us in touch. Great guy. Great addition uh, to your team. Uh, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Steve. It was a, it, the pleasure is all mine, and uh, I wish uh, you and your audience all the best. And to everyone, uh, please stay safe uh, and be safe out there as we uh, return back to a new normal. Thank you so much. And everybody, this was another episode of Steve's Cannabis Show. Dr. Mohan Kure, the CEO and president of Candelog. Enjoy the episode. Please like, subscribe uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio Public, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Thanks again.